0: Without further ado, Simon. Thanks, Gray. Never business as usual. Never business as usual. It is, it is business. We will be here as usual. Good morning, guys. Um, my name is Simon, as Gray mentioned. If we've not met, um, it would be great to meet you. And um, just I want to especially welcome anyone here who is, is new, new-ish, visiting, just checking things out. Um, we say this I try to say this every week, but we, we want to be the kind of community where hopefully anyone can come and uh, experience truth, grace and new life in Jesus Christ. Um, and we realize that, that that's a lot. That's, that's a journey, that's perhaps something that, that takes a whole lifetime to to unpack, to understand, to experience, to grow. And, but we want to really emphasize the fact that, um, that we are here for anyone. So if you're here this morning thinking, well, I, I sort of feel like um, I'm definitely in, in a Christian thing here. That's great, wonderful, you've come to a Christian church. But you might be thinking, I, I'm not 100% sure I'm, I even... I'm into the whole Christian scene, um, but I'm here, I'm open, I'm, I'm willing to think and to process, so welcome, I'm glad you're here, I'm really, really glad you're here, and I hope that this is the kind of place, sort of setting in the atmosphere where you can feel safe, um, where you can feel empowered to ask your questions, to be yourself, um, to, to, to vocalize who you are and where you're at, and in that way, we can all grow together. Um, And that's what we're doing here this morning. And I hope this morning is no exception to that. Um, Guys, we're going to jump right into things this morning. Uh, Again, if you are new or newish, you may not realize it, but we have been working through a whole series of sermon, a sermon series, if you will, entitled Unlikely Church. And it's a study through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is one of a handful of letters that were written to the early church. This particular letter being written to the early church in Corinth. And thus, the letter to the Corinthians. It's unlikely because, as I've said many times, the church in Corinth was likely the most unlikely church to have actually made it out of the first century because they were a church with all sorts of interesting challenges and issues, and it's shocking how many of them, albeit in an ancient context feel really, really contemporary, because it would seem we, meaning humans, just haven't changed a whole lot. I mean, we've evolved in all sorts of ways, um, but in many, many other ways, we have not changed one bit. And so it's been, I think, a very, very helpful um, study processing through this book and realizing how being the community of Jesus is full of all sorts of interesting obstacles, so we're going to jump right into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. If you have a Bible, now would be the time to grab it, open it. Um, and we even have some Bibles in the boxes here in the center aisle, which you are very, very welcome to use if you'd like. Um, these are NIV translations. Um, the Bible I'm typically preaching out of on a Sunday morning is the ESV. No matter. Oh, back one slide real quick, please. This is part 24 and um, I've entitled our message this morning, Overcoming Hypocrisy, Remembering the Gospel. Let me just ask this question before we get right into 1 Corinthians 15. Um, have you ever been to a church, maybe just visiting, maybe you'd even be like a part of a church community, uh, where initially things just seemed fantastic, It was just, you know, they had great music, great preaching, cool mugs, and just, you know, your initial sort of sense was like, this is just, this is great. This is absolutely amazing. I love it here. The people are just so loving and welcoming. And then a bit of time goes on, and you begin to, I don't know, peel back a few layers only to discover that there is hypocrisy In this beloved community that you have found. Have you ever experienced this? Never. Okay, never mind. It doesn't exist. It will never happen. You have found the perfect church. And you know, maybe it's not a church thing. I do realize that we all have like actual lives outside of church. Um, Have you ever... Have you ever been in a relationship that starts out one way? Um, probably great. It's, you know, sparks are flying. It's the chemistry is flowing. And you're like, this is, this is just amazing. And then maybe a few weeks or a few months or I don't know, several years go by. And chemistry begins to wane. And you begin to discover some uh, discrepancies in this person and their life, and all that you thought they were. And you discover that there is hypocrisy in this person's life. Have you ever experienced that? No, no one's You guys are quiet this morning. Okay, how about this one? Third time's a charm. Have you ever started a job, and you're like, dude, this is the best job ever? Awesome boss amazing colleagues, compensation is just right, and you're loving it, you're feeling it, and then like a couple months in, you're thinking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hate this place, I hate these people, and all of a sudden, what you thought was just this perfect situation um, turns out to be something else. Have you ever experienced this? Yes, finally. I'm tapping into into real life. (laughs) I have. I have for sure. I've had that job. Um, I won't say I have that job. (laughs) I love my job. But there is something about our real life experience where there can be this this sense um, initially when you're just getting to know uh, a group of people, a situation, or a church community where on the outside it's like wow things this is good this is great like i've never experienced such a wonderful community and then it doesn't typically take that long but you begin to realize if you just pull back a few layers um there's a whole lot of other stuff going on guys this this is our church in corinth this is this is what's happening um It's full of activity. It's, it's a church that's... The, the, the teaching is, is par excellence. I mean, the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, a large portion of the New Testament, he was used by God to pin Scripture, planted the church. We also know that a gentleman named Apollos, who was uh, an, apparently a fantastic Bible teacher, these two men were the primary teaching leaders in this church. Um, the church was buzzing with like spiritual activity. They were, they were well tapped into spiritual gifts, prophecy, healing, miracles. They were a, a vibrant church, to say the very least. Only if you were to pull back uh, a layer or two, you discovered that the church was just full of a divisiveness, a bickering, backbiting, division, drama of all sorts and kinds. There was uh, apparently some gross sexual immorality um, throughout the church. I don't know if you remember all the way back in like chapters one and two, but Paul talks about there was a, a young man in the Corinthian church who was actually having an affair with his stepmom, and. The church was kind of like okay with it. Um, Greed was a major problem in the church. Corinth was a uh, a relatively affluent port town. A lot of international trade going on. It was sort of a a Greek outpost in terms of currency and exchange. So there was a lot of wealthy, well-to-do people in the congregation apparently, But, as always, there was also people who weren't so well off. When the church would come together for the sacred meal, to worship and to remember Jesus as they took communion, the bread and the the cup, apparently some people were indulging. It was like an occasion for personal spiritual indulgence, while others, without, were being completely marginalized. Greed was just rampant in the church. Um, drunkenness apparently was a, was a thing. Um, not only were they taking communion, you know, we've got this little like dip it in the cup. They were like, just give me the cup. <sighs> like going for it. Um, there was swindling, apparently. Lawsuits happening. Could you imagine in a church this size if there was two people, someone on this side and someone on this side in the middle of a major like lawsuit how incredibly awkward would that be now we know from historical scholars that the church in Corinth was quite likely not nearly as big as our little congregation here today so people were suing each other and they're their, that they tight little Jesus community um, there was massive anxiety regarding marriage. So a marriage breakdown just rampant. Um, all sorts of, of confusion, anxiety, power struggles. People were judging each other uh, over, over matters of conscience. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that um, because they were largely non-Jews coming into the Jesus community, they weren't, didn't have like a a framework for um, the, some of the customs and traditions that would have been passed down within the Jewish law, i.e. the kosher diet. And so people were eating all sorts of food, meats, um, things that other believers would have looked on as like, oh, that's, uh, no, that's, that's unclean or that's unacceptable. And, of course, they didn't know any better they were just eating me as if like, it's just me. What's the big deal? You're a vegetarian, you're a vegan, I, I'm, I'm a carnivore. And there was real judgment going on in the church, not over sin, but over matters of like personal conviction, over, over simple matters of conscience. And then finally, as I mentioned a minute ago, the, the spiritual gifts see, spiritually, it was a vibrant church. It wasn't one of these like boring churches where you walk in and you're just like the 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 very life is just sucked out of you? There's all sorts of activity going on. People just shouting out in tongues. People getting up in the middle of the sermon, prophesying. Um, sounds like insane and probably a little entertaining. But what was happening was people were using these these so-called spiritual gifts as an opportunity to. Posture and show off. This was the church in Corinth. On the surface, it would seem like they had it all going on. They had the teaching, they had the power, they had the knowledge, they had the gathering. Peel back a layer or two. What were they missing? Love. Love. They were missing love. Paul... Um, writes this letter to the church in Corinth largely as like one long systematic correction. He's like, and he starts out very positive. He's like, I thank God for you. I thank God who is faithful and will finish the work that he has started in you because he got this thing going by grace, doing something that was clearly beyond you and he's going to complete what he has started by his spirit. But guys, we need to talk. We need, to, we, need to, we need to adjust some of this stuff that's going on because the world's looking on. And the way you're loving each other or not, it's not on. So he writes this letter to, to correct them. And uh, guys, if you've been around for a few months, you know we've, we've been on a bit of a journey. I and mean, we've, we've covered, covered quite a broad spectrum of issues, have we not? Was anyone here last week? Yeah, that was, that was kind of a doozy, really. Um, let me just put it this way. There was a lot in 1 Corinthians that um, I would have been happy just like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just skip that bit. We'll just, we'll just call that one cultural and just kind of move right along. Um, but we, we didn't. We worked through it. And finally, we've come to a, uh, I, I would say, juncture in the letter. We've come to a turning point he's addressed all of these issues, all of these people judging each other, the chaos, the greed, the lawsuits, the, the marital um, discord. He's talking about all these things, and at the end of it, he sort of builds up to say, your real problem, isn't that you're not like doing religion right? It's that you're, you're missing the love the love that God pours into our hearts that gives meaning, that actually gives substance to all of the, the activity and, and the moral behavior. Without love, what are, we, what are we doing here? Without love, we are utterly wasting our time. So that's where we've gotten to. And then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read this. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which. You are being saved if you hold fast to the word, that is the gospel I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Next slide, verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is, the Apostle Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive. Check it out. Though some have fallen asleep, i.e., died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, talking about all the other witnesses, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. He's reminding this little community of Jesus' followers what this church business is really all about. He reminds the Corinthians that unless, unless all of the activity all of our moral endeavor, all of our spiritual zeal, unless it flows out of that, unless somehow it's the outworking of what God has done in Christ, the gospel, unless it flows out of there, we've completely missed the point. We've completely missed it. In fact, unless what we're doing here today is somehow a ramification of the gospel, because we've lapsed into the worst scenario of all religion. Just religion. Thinking right thoughts, acting moral. Being pious, all good things. It's good that we're nice to each other. It's good that we're, we're decent, that we're ethical. But that's not what we're doing here. The gospel is what started the church. Who God is and what He has done for you and I. Okay. The gospel is meant to be at the very center of our gathering, our worship, our friendships, our behavior, our jobs, our families, our marriages, our giving, our generosity, our spiritual gifts. All of these things are meant to be a demonstration of this very core truth that in Christ, God died for my sins. Not only did he die, but he was buried and three days later came back to life. And this is the gospel. Let us remind ourselves of the gospel because spiritual activity minus that, it's it's the cancer of religion. It's people getting together thinking that we've got it all figured out. We've got all the answers. And if everyone can just think more like us, the world will somehow be all right. And that's not it. That's not the gospel. The gospel. Let's, let's talk about this. I wanna, I wanna break this into four parts. Number one, the gospel reminds us that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, the gospel is that he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Number three, a lot of people saw it. This was an actual historical event. And number four, it calls for a response. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, reminds us of our problem. It reminds us, like the Corinthians. That their problem wasn't that they just weren't doing it good enough. Their problem wasn't a matter of behavior. The human condition, our problem, isn't a matter of activity or thought. It's not bad politics. It's not unfortunate circumstances. The human problem... Is a matter of the heart. Christ dying for my sins isn't Christ dying for my slip up. Isn't Christ dying for the fact that I was born into the family that I happened to be born into. Christ dying for my sins isn't the fact that our nation has gone a bit wacky with all of the, the, the political upheaval and, and the, the different debates and riots and everything else that's going on. Christ dying for our sins remind us that the very core of the human problem is a human heart that's bent on self. The human problem isn't you or you or them my problem starts right here inside. It's my sin. It's our sin that is the problem. And God entered into creation to die for it, for my sin and for yours. The gospel reminds us as well that the solution to our problem isn't better behavior or more advanced uh, analysis. Sometimes I think we like to think that if we can simply understand everything a bit better, if we can somehow put a scientific spin on everything, then then somehow we've 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 made progress. I'm all for scientific progress. I'm all for education. I'm all for self awareness. But the solution isn't just better understanding. It's it's something much deeper than that. The gospel reminds us that the solution to my sin problem is a better God. It's a better God. I've heard it put it this way if you want, every problem in our life can be traced back to a crisis of leadership. What do you think about that? If you have a problem in your workplace, there's a very good chance that it has something to do with the leadership in that office. If there's a problem in your family, there's a very good chance it's actually not your two-year-old's fault. No, it might have something to do with the leadership in that family. If our nation is in crisis, I'm just just putting it out there, but it could have something to do with a group of people at the top. Your problem in your life is that you need a better God. My problem before I met Jesus, it was a million different things, so I thought. What I discovered that my biggest problem was that I was acting as my own God. And let me tell you guys something. No one needs me as their God. I don't need me as my God. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rubbish, self-centered, vindictive, merciless, cruel, lazy God. God when I am calling the shots in my own life, when I decide what's right, what's wrong, what's best and what's not, I make some really weird, selfish decisions. And it always goes wrong. This is the human story. Humanity recognizing that we've got problems and humanity thinking that humanity is humanity's answer to the problem. We've been at it for, I don't know how many thousands of years. We need a better God. We need a God who is all-powerful. Who knows the beginning from the end. Who is wise. Who is loving. Who is full of grace, mercy, and justice. God himself is the solution to our sin the gospel reminds us that our problem is a heart problem and the solution is a better God. What are the implications of that? You know, when Jesus um, was hanging on the cross, when he was being crucified, the gospels tell us that he had... Um, Two criminals, one on either side. One was railing against Jesus, accusing him, reviling him, saying, if you're you're this so-called Messiah, if you are who your followers claim you are, why don't you save yourself? Save me while you're at it. And he's just railing at him, accusing him. And then there's criminal on the other side, who's like, shut up. We're up here because we deserve to be crucified. We're suffering the same sentence of death, only we deserve it. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, is there room for me in your kingdom? And Jesus says, yes, today I will see you in paradise Guys, there's something so profound about these two individuals being crucified on either side of Jesus. On one hand, you have the the angry accuser, the one who just wants to focus on on the the pain, the evil. It's almost as like pain has has consumed this man. And whatever happened to him in his life clearly has defined him. Dying breath is nothing but just hatred and anger. Cursing God. Cursing the people around him. And on the other side, there's this man who probably committed the same crimes, and yet he's looking to Jesus, hoping, hoping that there's mercy. Guys, this is a picture of how on the cross, this is the implications of the gospel. On the cross, on one hand, we see justice being served. On the other side, we see mercy being offered. On the cross, we find both hope and knowing that God ultimately will execute justice for victims, for those who are being railed against by the world. And on the other side, we find, we find humility. On the one side, we have the person who's spouting nothing but lies, who's personified bitterness, pain. Some of you, some of us, I should say, we hope that in coming to God, we can find a response for all of the evil and pain that we've experienced in this world. We hope that the God we're looking to is strong enough to execute judgment where evil has run rampant in our worlds. Some of us relate more with a victim than anything else, and we want to know, we want to know that all of the sins committed against me, all of the lies that I've endured for a lifetime will finally be silenced, will be laid in the ground. We want to know that in the final verdict, justice will be upheld. This man who was just filled with rage, anger, hatred to his dying breath, In the end, he was silenced. In the end, he was put in the ground. Guys, you need to know that one of the implications of the gospel is that there is hope. There is hope. You've been lied to, you've been abused. You've been made to feel like dirt. You've been made to feel inadequate, without value. And you need to know that there is a greater truth. There is greater value that our God, our king, our creator has for you. Is there an end to the lies that you constantly hear playing over and over and over in your head? Is there a greater truth? Is there a greater authority who would look down and say, no, be quiet now? And put that lie in the ground. Because this is the picture of what's happening on this side of the cross you need to know that one of the implications of the gospel is that there is an opportunity to become a new person you get a chance to start over that the lies that you've heard all your life they pale in comparison to the truth that God looks down and says you have no idea how much I value you Your salvation, your adoption into the family of God is invaluable. That is one of the great implications of the gospel. But then on the other side, there's this, um, there's this reality that actually, I'm a criminal too. I'm culpable. Not only have I been sinned against, not only have I been lied to, abused, and made to feel like dirt, but I've played my part in all of this. I've lied to people. I've hurt people. I've rejected plenty. And I'm hoping that when I look to Jesus, he'll look back at me and say, there is mercy for you today. I know you deserve to die. I know know you deserve to be condemned. But today there's mercy for you. Guys, it's the great humbler. It's the truth that says, yeah, that's all of us hanging on that cross. That's all of us condemned. That's all of us who deserve to suffer the just penalty for sin. And yet when we look to Jesus and we hope to see mercy in his eyes and he says, today I'll see you at home. Today there's room for you too in my kingdom, my family, in paradise. It leaves us in this this incredible, paradoxical place of great hope and great humility. Great hope, knowing that evil will be vanquished, that lies will be silenced, and that you get a chance to start over, but that also we don't deserve any of it. What we deserve we deserve is to be crucified, which is what it means when the scriptures say that Jesus died for us, and it leaves us in a very sobering, humble place. the corinthians this is where they 've gone wrong; they have forgotten the gospel. You know one of the the, the, the greatest telltale signs of a church that has forgotten the gospel. You know what it is? It's it's when you start to divide. It's when you start to fight each other, critique each other, complain, judge. And typically it will manifest by people picking sides. Or people saying, I like this teacher. No, no, I like this teacher. I'm for Apollos. No, no, I'm for Paul. I'm for John Mark. No way. I'm down with Simon (laughs) Bardoni. Or then there's some who say, oh, no, forget all that. I'm just for Jesus. Self righteous jerk. <laughs> yeah, you would say that, wouldn't you? We all know what you mean. And we begin to point fingers, we begin to judge, we begin to criticize, we begin to divide. And who am I? Who am I to point the finger at anyone? Who am I to judge the servant of another? I'm a a criminal who deserved to die, and yet by the grace of God, I am what I am, as Paul said. He said in his letter to Timothy, he said, here is a true and trustworthy saying, deserving of, of acceptance. He says, Christ came to die for sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Paul's not saying that like uh, metaphorically. He's not trying to simply make a point. He's saying this is, this is the way we should all be viewing ourselves. As beloved children who are so unfathomably loved, who have value beyond what we could possibly imagine. Why? Because God just loves. He's a loving Father who would leave the 99 to go running after the one. He's the father that looks out over the horizon waiting and hoping that his prodigal sons and daughters would just come home. He has a heart that just wells up full of grace and mercy, compassion, love, longing for his children to come home. (laughs) And here we come covered in our filth, dirty, nasty, just wrecked by the world, by our own selfishness and all the sin constantly bombarding us. And what does our Father do? Before we even have a chance to wipe ourselves off, he throws his arms around us and he says, go get the robe. Now get the good one. Get the best one in the house. That would be the father's robe. And put it around my child. Put the ring on their finger. Their royalty. They'd forgotten. They'd forgotten who they were. But today, my child has come home. It's time to celebrate. Because this is, this is the gospel. Everything else we do, it flows out of this truth. It flows out of this truth. I should have been condemned on that cross, but instead Jesus died for me. And so I live in great hope and constant humility. We need to remember this. And this is what Paul is reminding the Corinthians of. Stop fighting each other. Stop judging each other. Stop acting like like you're someone other than yourself. Remember who you are. Act like it. Love like it. Give like it. Forgive like it. Stand in this truth that you've received. Notice Paul says you've received it, you stand in it, and you are being saved in light of it. This gospel is not something we just get one time, like, ah, oh, got it, baptized, baptized, Moving on. Let's get into the you know, the interesting stuff. Give me some like let's secrets out of revelation. No. 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 The gospel becomes our way of life. As a church community, we gather and we begin to reenact it over and over and over. We reenact the gospel in our relationships. We reenact the gospel as we uh, sort of rub shoulders and, and offend each other and misunderstand each other. And when I say things you don't like and, and as you feel like, oh, like you're, you're so awkward and why do you do that and you annoy me. And Let's reenact the gospel. Let's remember, I deserve to die, but my God. God, rescued me. Because he died. And three days later, he came back to life. Not only do we live as new creations, living in great humility, we also live out our lives in perpetual hope. Perpetual hope. Because here's the thing about this gospel. Here's the thing about (laughs) living out, reenacting this great truth. It's not as if it's easy or without complication. Anyone married in here? Easiest thing you've ever ever done, right? Because you just fall in love and, and that's it. Happily ever after, no big deal. Let me tell you, without hope, you will give up yesterday. I'm not trying to sound cynical or jaded. Shirley and I, we love each other to death. Last night was fantastic. Um, Didn't quite come out right. (laughs) I mean, we had a great night. It was a great night. We had a little premarital counseling with our friends, and it was a wonderful night. We have a great marriage. You guys are being weird. But without hope, without hope, we would have given up a long time ago because we realized that, yes, we're living out the gospel. We realized, yes, God's grace is so, it's, it's transformative. And yes, I'm constantly reminded of of who I was and how God rescued me and, and how humility should be my, my, my stance, my posture. But it's so incredibly messy and complicated. And oftentimes it can feel like, hmm, this is, this is hard. And I would say that the resurrection, the fact that Jesus not only died for our sins, but he overcame our sin. He overcame the darkness. He overcame evil. He overcame death Death means that there is no pit too deep, no situation too dark, that the children of God are ever without hope. We live in a perpetual state of hope because Jesus rose from the dead. And then finally, Points three and four. A lot of people saw it, and it demands a response. Um, can you uh, come up, please? We're going to close. Paul he is very deliberate to emphasize the fact that the gospel is not just an idea. Okay, this isn't just a philosophy to apply. This is uh this is. This is something that happened. This is a reality. And he even says that it was 500 people plus witnesses that, that can testify to the fact that all of this happened. You saw him die, and now hundreds of people have, have seen the king risen again. And he's making the point that this isn't just something like, oh, huh, interesting, oh, good for you. No, no, this, this is an event to be reckoned with. This isn't just some, an idea to ponder. Oh, I'm so glad you found religion, wonderful. I'm, I'm glad that that helps you, helps you to be a better person. Well, it does help me to be a way better person. It helps me to be a not dead person. You know, the, the, often the critique is made, oh, you know, religion or whatever is just a crutch. No, it's not. It's, like it's a life support system. It's more than a crutch. We, we, are, we are spiritual amputees. Without Christ, we, we have nothing. We don't stand. We have no life. We're damned. This is a reality to be reckoned with. The gospel demands a response. And this is where I want to I close us today. It says that they were led forth in peace and went out with joy there's something very intense about the gospel and yet utterly freeing and full of joy it's a it's a weighty joy it's a joy of substance. It's a joy that, that changes us. I want to leave us with this. I, I'm just aware that, that as, we, as we begun, as we, we come into this place, we hear truth. Hopefully it's not just Words, but there's we're, we're interacting with each other. We're getting to know each other. And in that way, um, we experience something here as well. But it's not meant to end here. It's certainly not meant to, to be just this. So I want to encourage you, um, as you go out into the sunshine, have lunch in the park, get some vitamin D, and then continue the conversation. Find someone to process with. Find someone who who has enough humility to listen. And talk to God. Let him know where you're at. Do that in community with others. You guys with me? Father, thank you once again for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for your great hope, for your joy, for your power. Thank you for the way that you're, you're building up your church and causing us more and more to reflect who you are. Pray that as we leave here today, uh, you would utilize us in our workplaces, in our, our families, our marriages, our friendships, our classmates, and all of that, Lord. Pray that we would be conduits of your love in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Guys, have a great day. See you next Sunday.